I want to invite you to join me in the 73rd Psalm. The 73rd Psalm. And while you're turning there, I just want to make mention that uh, next week uh, we'll have a, a bit of a shift in our Sunday mornings and, and Sunday evenings. Next Sunday we're going to go back to two services, so we'll be here at 8.30 and 11. Uh, if, if you um, are newer here, this is kind of our, our normal schedule, and we took a little break and went to one service for the summer, and we're going to be back in two services, so you can come 8.30, 11. They'll be identical services. Uh, we have our discipleship communities at 10 a.m., and so we want to invite you, if you haven't yet, to make sure you check out what uh, new classes are going to be started. We'd love for you to get connected in one of those and uh, just get be a part of that. Our Sunday evening activities will resume with our youth and our kids, so make sure you check the bulletin and the website for more information on the times and everything. We want to invite you to, to be a part as, as fall approaches. Uh, we're ramping up in some of our activities and things that we'll be doing um, ministry-wise, so we want to invite you to, to check that out, and we look forward to seeing you uh, next week. Also next week, we're going to start a new sermon series. We're going to be studying the book of 1 Peter together, and so I hope that you'll join us for that. I'm excited about walking through that powerful book uh, together. But this week, we're finishing up our final uh, look at uh, the fight for faith, and uh, the title of today's message is Praying in the Fight for Faith, and the importance of going to God in those times of need, uh, in those times of battle. Last week, we spent some time considering what it means to fight for faith in the midst of doubts, of our uncertainties, of our wrestling. When those big questions of life, those big circumstances of life, we were asking, how do you fight for faith when the situation seems so bleak? How can I trust God when the mountain seems insurmountable? Just by way of some examples, how do I trust God when I encounter profound tragedy, when I'm facing serious or prolonged illness? When the bills keep stacking up and there seems to be no relief in sight? How can I trust God when I'm caught in the middle of the cycle of sin and can't seem to climb out? How do you trust God when your adult children have walked away from Christ or are making a wreck out of their lives and you can't fix the problem? How do you trust God when your marriage has been tossed by countless storms against the rocks and like a battered ship seems ready to break apart at any moment? How do you trust God when depression or anxiety has gripped you and seems to permeate everything you do? How do you trust God when you're fearful to speak up for your faith, knowing what happened the last time you gathered the courage to do so? The list could go on and on, couldn't it? How do we trust God in those moments? What do we do? I'll give you a hint that you probably surmised from the title of today's message. We pray. This is not a cliche. This is not a uh, Sunday school answer. This is our, this is our anchor. Th this is our lifeline to come into the presence of God. So we're going to look at a psalm writer who found himself in just this sort of a situation, when the questions arose, when doubt beat against his ship, he wondered if God was trustworthy. He wondered how he could cling to faith, how he could fight for faith. We're going to read this psalmist's prayer. 
Psalm 73, we read this. God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps nearly went astray. For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imaginations of their hearts run wild. They mock. They speak maliciously. They arrogantly threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven, and their tongues strut across the earth. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in their overflowing words. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know everything? Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease and they increase their wealth. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. If I had decided to say these things aloud, I would have betrayed your people. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until, until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make, you make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end, swept away by terrors like one waking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. When I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded, I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven besides you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those who are far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell you about all you do. The psalmist, he was in the middle of a fight. He was in the middle of a wrestling match with God, a struggle to find his faith. Now, faith. Now, now, this psalm is traditionally attributed to Asaph. You'll see that at the heading there, a psalm of Asaph. We don't know if he wrote it or he, Asaph was a worship leader uh, in David's time. And he helped, uh, probably even had a school for music, uh, many scholars think, and helped uh, bring about the worship songs and put them to music so the congregation could sing these psalms as praises to God. And whether he was uh, just attributed this because he was leading in worship or, or it could have very well been David's words, we don't know exactly. One thing we do know that this, is that this is a powerful example of the way that God's people can genuinely wrestle with the things that God's doing. One writer says this psalm demonstrates the inestimable value of an intimate and continual relationship with God. The psalm's shows that this recognition is no shallow optimism, but it is hard won in the face of the inequities and the complexities of life. Most of you here have lived long enough to know that a shallow optimism will not see us through the deep valleys of life. 
We need a rock. We need a refuge. We need an anchor. And this psalm reveals that fight to lay hold of the rock. Just briefly, I want to talk about his fight for faith. You could hear it in the words that we were wrestling. For, this, for the psalmist here, his battle was he looked at the wicked and he felt, man, everything goes right for them. They can do whatever they want. They've got all their needs met and they don't have to answer to God. Their life looks pretty doggone awesome. That was his wrestling match. For you and I, the wrestling match, the fight for faith might be different. That was his. We listed off some at the beginning. Could be health-related for you. Could have to do with your, your kids or your adult kids. It could be finances. Whatever it is, this psalmist said, listen, I'm having trouble with what I see. I'm having trouble with what I see playing out in life, reconciling with my theology. And he was struggling. He says, my feet almost slipped. He was right on the precipice of saying, forget this. If I can live like that in this life, why am I suffering? Why am I going through all this hardship? I'm going to go over here. I'm going to take this path. Like the Billy Joel song, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. He says, this looks really, really nice. I don't want to linger here long, but I think this is really important. He identified what it was that was troubling him. I think this is important as we wrestle with our faith, as we, as we try to hold on in the midst of uncertainty. He, he, he got right down to what was really bugging him. And I, and I think that's really important. Sometimes we have this general unsettled feeling with God that things aren't right. And I think this is a time that you, you try to spend to get to the bottom of it. What's, what is eating at us? What's, what's keeping us from approaching God? What am I really wrestling with here? He identified it. I'm looking at them. They seem happy. Life seems amazing for them. Why am I on this path when I could be on that path? I, I also just want to make this other observation before we talk about the importance of prayer and the fight for faith. Notice did you, did you notice as we read, until he has a turning point, which takes place about verse 17, did you notice that all of his talking, well, none of it was directed to God. It was all internal wrestlings and questions and frustrations. He, he experienced the most turmoil when he was not addressing and talking to God. We don't see him really address God until he gets to the second half of the, the, the psalm. I don't know if you've ever been like this, but there are times when, when I'm really wrestling with something or maybe it's a sin issue or I'm struggling or I'm, I, I feel upset with somebody and uh, I, I like to go for a walk when I pray and, and it just, I don't know, it, I just always like to do that. And, and there are times when I'll start off the walk and I'll be praying and I'll be talking to God, just laying my heart before Him. But before, <laughs> before long, I find myself talking to the person I'm ups upset with even though they're nowhere to be found. Or I'm, I'm rehearsing my frustrations more to myself. And, and, it's, and it ceased becoming a prayer. I'm, 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 I'm talking to some mysterious crowd or some absent uh, uh, 
you know, person there that is not God. <laughs> it's so, so important that when we're in the middle of this stuff that we don't, we, we, that we don't cut off this lifeline. We don't cut off this conversation with God. So how, how important is praying in the fight for faith? And how, how do you do it? Where do you begin? Well, the first thing that we, we see here is that the psalmist turned to God. Did you catch the turning point? Did you catch where the, the momentum shift? He, he, he shifted. He said uh, in verse 14, I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. You can sort of see him coming to the end of his rope, and he's like, I, I just don't understand why these guys have it so good, and I'm struggling so deeply. When I tried to understand this, it seemed hopeless, but then verse 17, until I entered God's sanctuary. You see, the turning point for this psalmist was when he turned to God. He stopped looking at the circumstances. He stopped looking at the, the, the people that he was envying, the wicked who seemed to be prospering. He took his eyes off his situation and he entered the sanctuary. Now, I don't think, I might be wrong about this, but I don't think he's talking about going to the temple on Saturday, on the day of worship. I don't think he's telling us here that you just have to wait till Sunday till you can come gather with God's people and then you're entering the sanctuary. We often call this room the sanctuary. I sure hope our prayer is that this is a place where we meet with God and we encounter God through worship. But I'll tell you what, if you, if you need this building to encounter God, your spiritual life is going to be extremely anemic. The psalmist needed to encounter God on his own. He needed to find that place where he was with God. Until I entered God's sanctuary. One writer says the light breaks in as he turns to God himself. And to him as an object, not of speculation, but of worship. The turning point came when he came into the presence of God. Worship is a reorienting of our vision, a way of helping us see things clearly. We'll say more about this as we go on. The second thing he did is that he was honest with God. He was honest with God. This is, this is a fascinating psalm. And I sure hope that reading this can take a tremendous load of guilt off of you if you've ever felt like, can I say this to God? Can I really tell him that this is what's going on in my mind? First of all, you all know, right, that he, he already knows what's going on in our hearts and minds. We're not like hiding it from him. The, the psalmist here is extremely honest. In fact, he even admits that, he said, if I started saying these things out loud, it would affect the congregation of God's people. Like he knew that these, these doubts and these fears and these questions, they needed to be asked, but they were so intense that, that he knew they would have affected other followers of God. He knew he needed to be honest with God. Listen, we're never going to work through, well, anything, sin, but any kind of doubts, any kind of wrestling for our faith, if we can't tell God what's really on our heart and mind. I get it. Ever since Eden, the natural impulse is to hide. It's to run away. 
It's to sow fig leaves for ourselves and cover up. It's to whitewash. It's to brush aside. It's not that bad. It's no big deal. I'm doing fine. I get that that's our impulse. But if we're going to be honest with anybody, we must start by being honest with God. It's okay to come to God and say, God, this is happening in my life, and I don't like it one bit. It does not seem fair. I am not cool with this. God can handle that. Like, the Psalms are so precious because they give words to these things that we, can, we wrestle with so deeply. Keep your place there. I, I just want to show this. I, 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 this didn't really dawn on me until recently. I, someone pointed this out. Go over to the left and look, over, look at Psalm 23. This is one of our favorite psalms, right? It's the most requested funeral song. Chances are, if you memorize scripture uh, at some point in your life, this was towards the top of the list. This is a precious little psalm. We love this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. You can close your eyes and you can picture this place. Maybe you've even been to a a place physically, literally, that was like this. And your mind gravitates to this serene place of God's peace and beauty and comfort and presence. Do you you know what other psalm is in the Bible? Look at the one right before it. Same author, David. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. (laughs) Same author. He's not suffering from multiple personality disorder. He's walking the Christian life. He's living in this world, the, the same one that you and I live in. And there are these times of God's beautiful presence and serenity, the, the mountaintop experiences, those worship services where you feel like, like it's just you and God, lift, you're lifting up your voice to Him, and it's beautiful and powerful, or a, a conference, or just an encouraging devotional time in the morning. And then there are the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me times. I love that the Psalms give words can put, put the words into our mouth when we have none. David and the author of this psalm, if it's Asaph, could be honest with God. In our praying in a fight for faith, we have to be able to be honest with him. He longs for you to share your fears, your doubts, your worries. He doesn't just want to hear from you and I when we're having a great day. He certainly doesn't want to just hear from you and I when we have a big thing that we need. He longs for us to come to him and pour out our hearts before him. The third thing I noticed about this is that the psalmist confessed his sin to God. And we said last week that doubt is not a sin. Having questions, having doubts, genuinely wrestling with things, it's not a sin. Doubt can be a good thing that leads us to dig deeper into our faith, to ask important questions. But here's the thing. Sometimes in our doubts, we can 
find ourselves sinning before God. Sometimes those questions, if, if they're taking us down a path of bitterness, for example, they can lead us to a place where we need to confess sin. It's not wrong to ask the questions, but when the questions begin to, to lead to a, a, a spirit, well, it's, it's like you read the book of Job, and you see a man who starts off, and he's asking God a lot of legitimate questions. Why am I going through this, God? But as the book progresses, you can see the pride begin to swell in his heart and in his attitude and in the way he talks to God. So that by the time God shows up on the scene towards the end of the book, Job has gotten to a point where he's shaking his fist at God. And one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, we hear the voice of God. Who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Who do you think you are, Job? It, got from, it started a genuine place of asking the questions, of really wrestling, but it led to a place of pride and bitterness, and I know better than you, God. And Job needed to be put in his place. The psalmist here, he says, um, uh, I, I, lo I love the, the imagery. He said um, in verse 21, when I became embittered and my innermost being was wounded. So his questioning led to bitterness. And he says, I was stupid. And I didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, God. What a picture. He just says it like it is. I got really stupid, God. God listens to that prayer, that confession. That's a legitimate question. God, I'm stupid. I did something really stupid today. As we're wrestling in this fight for faith, Guard your heart. Be careful that it doesn't lead you down a path of bitterness. And when the Spirit of God convicts you, if, if, it, if you've gotten down that path, be willing to confess your sin. He's not repenting of asking questions. He's not repenting of having doubts. But he does need to repent of the bitterness that began to well up in his heart. In this process, be willing to confess your sin to God as his Spirit convicts. And then we get to the heart of his prayer. As he turns his heart towards God, he's entered into the sanctuary, verse 17. He begins to rehearse truth before God. This is our third week we've talked about faith, and every week we've talked about this, and that's intentional. I'm not just repeating myself because I forgot what I said last week, but the truth is so crucial to this whole process of the fight for faith. If we don't have anything to grab onto to anchor our faith to, we're just going to be grasping at airs, at wishes, at whims, at fancies about what we think God is like or how we think he should act. We need rock-solid truth to grab a hold of. And so the psalmist began, as he, as he drew near to God, came into the presence of God, he began to rehearse truth about God. And I just wrote down a couple of things here that I saw. He began to rehearse truth about his doubts. He began to really put them in perspective. Again, I can't say it enough. It's not wrong to have the, the questions. But he says in verse 20, I became one like waking from a dream, Lord. The light bulbs began to go on. And he began to see what the truth was, especially, remember, his, his fight for faith was seeing wicked people having a great time, partying, living it up, and seemed like that could be a better life. And so he had to reorient himself to the truth. What is, what is true about that, he says? What, what do I know to be true about living life on my own, living the, for the lust of the flesh, 
He says in verse 27, those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. He began to understand that that was not a wise path to go down. While on a surface level, it looked great. He began to rehearse the truth that he knew, that, that, that living that life, Scripture tells us that there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end leads unto death. He began to realize, just like Jesus taught in Matthew 7, 23, that their ultimate end would be, depart from me, I never knew you. And as he reoriented himself to truth, he's like, oh, okay, the party I heard about last Saturday night sure sounded like a lot of fun. It sounded like they were having a crazy good time. I'm not going to lie, God. But here's the truth of the matter. That life leads to death. Thank you, God, for reminding me of the truth of life lived apart from you. When we're wrestling with our doubts, ask God to reveal the truth that you might have eyes to see the truth about that thing that you want so desperately. Fill in the blank. Secondly, he rehearsed truth about God's presence. Verse 23, he says, yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. Have you noticed how his language has changed? He's not just talking about the wicked, but now he's talking to God. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. He wanted to remember that God was present with him. I think one of the, one of the greatest struggles that we'll have when we hit these fighting for faith kind of moments is wondering whether God's really there, whether he really hears. And there will be times when it feels like he doesn't. There will be times when we can't sense acutely the presence of God. We sing, many of you grew up singing Edward Moat's hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less. And there's a line in there, two lines in there that capture this struggle so clearly. He says, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. There'll be times when the, the face of Christ is veiled to us. For whatever reason, some Christians down through the centuries have called it the dark night of the soul. When we can't see his face, we rest on his unchanging grace. We rest on his promise that he is present. Even if we can't see him, even if we can't feel him, even if we don't have that warm joy, we know that he has promised to be present. And the psalmist goes even beyond that and he says, you hold my right hand. You're there to comfort me. How many times, I mean, it's such a precious thing. Our kids are past that age. But how many times when they sense some, they're in a potentially unsafe situation or they feel some danger and they quickly reach for your hand, grasping, looking for that presence, looking for that assurance. It's a precious thing 
parents enjoy. And the psalmist here says that God has done the same for him. He's grabbed a hold of my hand. I know you're present. I know you're here. As you pray in the fight for faith, rehearse the promises of God and rehearse the knowledge that you know He is near. Thirdly, pray about the truth of our true longing. He says in verses 25 and 26, as he's praying to God, Who have I in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. Listen to that. He says, deep down, I know I don't want this stuff. A great party, having, having some money to build a mansion, and he says at the beginning that having eyes bulging out from fatness, in verse 7. He's like, that looks appealing. <laughs> Big fat buggy eyes, because I have all the food I want. There's a surface level in which this seems nice. But he says, I know that deep down that doesn't last. That's not what I really want. Who do I have in heaven but you? I desire nothing on earth but you. He knows he has a hunger and a craving that goes far beyond a booze-filled party and bougie mansions. He has a craving for God. He has a hole in his heart that he knows only the Almighty can satisfy. As we're praying in the middle of that fight, whether it's, God, I, I want this healing so badly. I want my loved one to be healed so badly. Perhaps, God may not answer our prayer in the way that we would like to see him answer it. But he says, I am going to give you me. I want you to cling to me in the midst of this. Whatever that wrestling of faith, our true longing is not the gift, but it's the giver of the gift. He says, my heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He's my portion forever. He's what I truly want. If you're a reader of C.S. Lewis, you'll recognize this quote, but I... It never gets old to me. He says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature, the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Remember, in the fight for faith, that thing that you may be wanting so desperately, and maybe it's even a good thing, it pales in comparison to the giver of good gifts. He is at the source of all joy. May we remember the truth about our true longings. Fourthly, as we pray in the fight for faith, pray through the truth about our future. He says in verse 24, he says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me up into glory. He was remembering to keep the long-term goal, the, long, the end game in mind. 
wasn't just playing for a simple pleasure in the moment. He recognized that there was a glory to be revealed one day. I wish we had time to camp here and, and reflect on and turn around the, 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 those, those rewards and the glory of the presence of God. That song we mentioned just a moment ago, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, says this, When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. God is the one who has promised us a future, an eternity with Him. Remember that in the fight for faith. And pray that before God. And then fifthly, praying the truth about God's power. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. God's strength is far more glorious and amazing. His omnipotence is far and beyond what we could ever even imagine. God's ability to intervene and work in the midst of our situation is beyond what even we can fathom. We may think we've got, and I've done this more times than I could ever even try to count, this perfect plan that if God would just do what I, I have thought out and planned out here, everything would work out fine, and we'd all learn our lessons, and we'd get what we want, and it would just be this neatly wrapped up present at the end. And God's wisdom and his power and his might are so far beyond us. He's doing things that we can't even fathom in the midst of our fight. We can't fight for faith without prayer. It's our lifeline. It's coming into the presence of God, being honest with Him, pouring out these things before Him, and then rehearsing truth before Him, praying through His promises. I love how the psalm finishes when he says, but as for me, God's presence is my good. He knows that there is nothing better than enjoying that fellowship. In the New Testament, Jesus in John 15 calls this abiding. That connectivity, that closeness, that intimacy with God. Even if our circumstances around us haven't changed. The, the, the fat, buggy-eyed people, the wealthy, the wicked, they were all still doing their thing. The circumstances didn't change for the psalmist here. What changed was his attitude in his relationship with God, being content with the presence of God. My brothers and sisters, God's calling us this morning as we pray in the fight for faith to be content with his presence, to be content to go near to him. But if you notice that verse 28 doesn't just simply end with me and God. So often we think of our Christian life in those terms. I'm wrestling, I'm fighting, uh, I'm struggling, striving, and, and, I, and I, I want to either overcome this sin or I want to, to just rejoice in the presence of God. And, and the, the psalm really could have ended there. I have made the Lord God my refuge. God's presence is my good. I've made him my refuge. End of story. But notice his last line. You see, the end game wasn't just about himself and reconciling these doubts that he was having, but the end game was what? What does he say at the end? What's the last phrase? So, so I can tell about all you do. 
He wasn't just going to keep it to himself. At the heart, the psalmist here is about mission. He wanted to be able to share his story. He wanted to be able to share what God had done and was doing in his life. And he noticed he didn't, he, he shared the story. He told us the story. He wrote it down. And millions and millions of people have read it in human history. And he didn't just share the end of the story, how everything was nice for him. He shared his wrestling match. He shared his fight for faith. But in the end, he wanted to be a witness. Last week, I shared the story of Vanitha Risner. After losing her infant son, a friend composed a song made very popular by Natalie Grant called Held. And I read the chorus last week. I'll read it again. The chorus goes like this. This is what it means to be held. How it feels when the sacred is torn from your life and you survive. This is what it is to be loved and to know that the promise was that when everything fell, we'd be held. The presence of God. I love when Vanitha shared her story it wasn't just for her own comfort. It wasn't just so that God would meet her where she was and help her in her fight for faith. She goes on to tell this story here, and I'll close with this. She said, it had been a miserable rainy day, and I was feeling sorry for myself, running behind on errands because of the stormy weather. Partially drenched, I ducked into a bagel shop to grab a quick lunch. It wasn't busy, but the guy making my sandwich seemed interminably slow. Couldn't he go a little faster, I wondered, as I sighed impatiently. He was almost finished, just tearing the final leaf of lettuce when the song Held came on the radio. She said, as I heard the familiar chords, I felt my tension and irritation drift away. Thankful for the delay, I smiled and leaned against the counter to enjoy the moment, unhurried. This song about my, un, uh, my own infant son. Some healing had come out of my brokenness, and it was still healing me. She said, lost in my thoughts, I didn't notice that the young man making my sandwich had also stopped. And when I looked up, he was crying. She said, her eyes met, and he apologetically mumbled, I I'm sorry. Are you in a hurry? Do you mind if I stop for a minute and listen to this song? You see, my mom died a few months ago, and it was this song that was the only thing that got me through. It meant so much to my whole family. She said, I cringed at my prior impatience. Pulling myself together, I nodded and whispered, please do, take as much time as you want. I, I love this song, too. Time stopped as this stranger and I shared a sacred moment together, she wrote. I stood in silence as he took in the song, mouthing the familiar words as I recited them in my head. When the song was over, tears were streaming down my face as well, tears of hope, tears of redemption. I knew that the song had touched thousands of people, but I'd never seen evidence of that firsthand. I'd never witnessed its healing impact on broken people. I'd never fully understood the way God was using it to comfort others. I will never forget that day. Seeing purpose in my own suffering was more redemptive than I had ever imagined. While it didn't take away the pain, it did take away its sharp sting. Knowing that God was using my loss made it easier to endure. It helped me to see how God uses all of our suffering 
for our joy in His glory. My brothers and sisters, as we walk through these moments and we're fighting to cling, hold fast to God in the midst of our fight for faith, remember that in the end, this is probably not about you. To be sure, it has to do with you and you drawing near to God in the moment, coming into His sanctuary. But there's a much bigger planet work that you and I can't even begin to fathom. And God is unfolding and unfurling His will and His work so that what you're walking through, your fight for faith, will not only end in, in this joyful strengthening in the presence of God, but will also serve to touch the hearts and lives of people you probably don't even know yet. This morning, we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's table together. You see, it's, it's because of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross that we have any purpose in our suffering. Suffering would be meaningless, virtually meaningless, if it weren't for what Jesus did. See, God himself came to earth. He, he didn't choose to remain separate from our suffering. He came to enter into the things that we struggle with, the things that we are hurt by, the battles that we face, all of the things that he that you and I face, rejection, pain, mocking, it's all there. He walked through it first. So this morning, I want us to end by fixing our eyes upon Jesus. You know, so often when we are in that fight for faith, we're, we're fixated on our own thing, or how we don't have what we want, or how God doesn't seem to be answering our prayers in the way that we want. But when we can fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ, we begin the path of drawing near to, to God. Our circumstances may not change, but we're coming into His presence. And that's my prayer as we celebrate the Lord's table this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, we want to invite you to celebrate the Lord's table with us. Uh, in just a moment here as I pray, our, our worship team is going to come up. And I want to invite you to just take as much time in your seats as you need to to, to talk to God. Use this as a time to, to just come into his presence and reflect on what Jesus has done for you. When you're ready, we want to invite you to come to the front. There's, um, there's bread and juice. And you can take it and come back to your seat. Um, I want to remind you that if you... Uh, if, if you're interested, we have gluten-free bread here in the, in the center, if that's of interest to you. Um, i also like to mention, too, that there's, you, you'll see some offering plates out here. This is on the first Sunday of every month. We, we take up a benevolence offering to help those in our church family that we can be a blessing to. So if, you, if you're led to give to that over and above your normal giving, feel free to do so. I can't think of a better way to end our time today and our discussion on the fight for faith than by coming into the presence of God through the Lord's table, reflecting on his body that was broken, the bread symbolizing that, the juice symbolizing the blood that he shed for us. I want us to take a moment and bow in some silent prayer and give you a chance to, to come before God.
Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we're just so thankful at the ways in which you meet us in our questions and our doubts and our fears. And we thank you that you're not wasting any of these things, whether it's trials, our own sin, or just, just the uncertainties that we have of laying hold of your promises, and walking with you, the questions that arise. We thank you that none of this throws you off your game, that none of this catches you by surprise. We thank you that you remain present. I pray, God, that for those of us wrestling with something this morning, struggling to believe, whether it's for a, a family member, for, for a, a person, whether it's for something that, that we need, a, a physical thing in our life, or, or a healing, or whatever, whatever on the spectrum it is, Lord, I, I pray that each and every one of your people would draw near to you today. That we would recognize that the answer is not in the, in the resolution as much as it is in your presence. May we come into your sanctuary this morning. May our hearts be drawn to you, O oh God. As we celebrate the table, we're reminded of our Savior who took all of these cares, all of these burdens, all of these sins upon himself. We have one who is not unfamiliar with our sufferings, as Hebrew, Hebrews tells us, but has been tempted in every way like we are. We have a Savior who understands. And as we celebrate this table, Lord, may you be pleased with our worship. May our hearts draw near to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please come. a place where streams of grace flow deep and Washed white, I owe all to you. 
Stand and sing this together at the cross. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I need all you. With all God, I need all you. Where your love, in my sin. 
your holy name. Bless you, God. If you need to pray or you need somebody to pray with you, we'll have people here waiting and ready to do that. We're so blessed. Amen. God, you're so good. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal encouragement and good hope by grace, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good work and word. Amen. Amen. If you don't mind, as you leave, keep it kind of somber if people want to join in prayer so they feel they can. Amen. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in all of you. I'm in all of you. Where your love ran and my sin washed away, I owe At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in Jesus.